I put a spell on you. And now you're mine. <laughs> you can't stop the things I do. Hello and welcome to the Final Girls podcast where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. In this first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Girls and your podcast host. And this is the end. This is the end of our witches series. It's going to be our last episode and to round up our first, but definitely, definitely not our last season. I'm joined by frequent podcast guest Becky Dark to do a roundup discussion of our favorite 13 witches from film and television. A little bit of housekeeping first. Most of this episode is spoiler free, but be warned there will be spoilers for the number nine film on our list. So once we get to that one, I suggest if you haven't seen it and you want to remain spoiler free, skip ahead once you hear us mention it. There will be a clip which will give you an opportunity to jump ahead. With that out of the way, thank you so much for listening to the series so far. It's been an absolute blast making it and we will be back in June with a new season that we will be announcing shortly. Let us know what you thought of the podcast so far and this witch series by rating it on Apple Podcasts or leaving a review if you're so inclined. They do really help and especially they help us understand what works, what doesn't and what kind of content you'd like to hear from us in the future. We've also, excitingly, launched a Patreon page. So whilst we work on the next series of the Final Ghost podcast, we'll be publishing some exclusive bonus episodes for our supporters over there. I'll leave the link in the show notes and feel free to check it out and we'll appreciate any support that you could throw away. But for now, enjoy our top 13 on-screen witches. Welcome, Becky, superstar, multiple guest of the Final Girls podcast and podcaster extraordinaire at this point. How many podcasts <laughs> are you hosting now? Oh, well, um, hosting two and, um, you know, guesting on, on here um, regularly, which I love. Thank you so much for asking me back for your kind of witchy wrap up episode. Um, mm-hmm. And then, yeah, lots of stuff with uh, Mike over at the Evolution of Horror as well. So it's a busy time, but I'm really, really happy to be back. I can't wait to get started. I know. I couldn't think of anyone better to do this wrap up. So to talk a little bit about what we're going to do in this episode. So it's the if there is such a thing as a podcast series finale, this would be the series finale where <laughs> <laughs> we kind of take Stoke and talk about overall some of the most iconic and our favorite on-screen witches, both in film and television. Some of the films that we're going to discuss, we have covered in the series. Some of them we have not for multiple reasons. And most of them because... I really wanted to keep this series to 25 episodes and cover 24 projects, both across film and TV, and have a a moment, kind of an episode of reflection, and also recommending films that might have not been able to be covered in the series, but that tie in with some of the ones that we're going to discuss here. So the way that this is going to work is we've picked um, 13 witches. We're going to talk a little bit about why they're all special. This is this is not a ranking of any significant importance, really, except it is the definitive ranking of all on-screen witches. <laughs> not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> 
So we're going to work kind of our way upwards. So we're going to start with the bottom. We're going to start with number 13 and we're going to work our way up to our top witches. So do you want to talk about your pick for number 13, Becky? Yes. So I'm going to start with, and you know, when you've got like those favorites and you have to kind of rank them and it's going to be recorded for posterity and you kind of feel guilty because you're putting them first, but it doesn't mean I don't love them. So my number 13 is the Sanderson sisters from Hocus Pocus. Open this door! Hide the child! The reason is that I think between the three of them, they so beautifully kind of embody the different um, types of witches that you get kind of across TV and film. Um, You've got uh, Winnie, Winifred, who is the much more kind of ruthless um she's she's got that definite kind of frisson of evil about her you know she really hates the kids and she seems to really delight in all of the um kind of the the evil plans that are afoot and you know she's she's very kind of singular and focused about this uh this mission that the sisters are on about um making sure that they can kind of stay in the present and and regain their youth you've got sarah who is much more this embodiment of the kind of voluptuous witch the sexy witch um the one who kind of lures um, young men and kind of children, you know, she's got that kind of sing-song voice uh, that she she's this kind of almost like this Pied Piper. Um, and then you've got Mary, who is the kind of, she's, she's sort of the comic relief, but for me, she um, embodies the types of witch that are maybe um, a little more kind of fun and camp, so I'm thinking of um, like uh, the aunt in Bell Book and Candle, you know, maybe a little more kind of flighty. They do their magic in a slightly more kind of frivolous way. Um, and they're maybe a bit more kind of motherly, a little less kind of evil or sexy. Um, they're just kind of this this other sort of like cuddly witch. Um, and so between the three sisters, I just think they kind of, they nail witches on on screen and it's also one of those epic children's films that kind of really change as you watch them and as you age because they're really one thing when you see them as a kid and then when you see them as an adult it reads like such a fun campy Bette Midler comedy yeah totally um and all the like musical numbers and stuff obviously um I just think, yeah, these, you know, and and being a kid and watching this film uh, as I used to at sleepovers with my friends and stuff and then revisit on Halloween multiple, multiple times over the years. um, You know, it is this kind of it's this fun side of the witch, Um, even, you know, with kind of Winnie when she's being a bit more kind of scary. um, You know, it's it is this musical kind of brightly coloured sort of vision of witches and their magic and it's all kind of very like 
sparkles and it's you can see the magic on screen which you know we'll talk about some of the other entries in our lists later and that is a very very different representation of witches and magic Mm -hmm. so on number 12 is one of my picks and probably the most esoteric and pretentious one of my picks it's the film v from 1967 it's a soviet production and it was actually the first soviet horror film that was made and my parents are russian so this was probably one of earliest if not maybe the only horror film that I've ever watched with my dad and it's really striking and essentially it's loosely based on a Nikolai Gogol uh, novella and the premise is that a seminary student so an aspiring priest uh, goes to is tasked with giving the last rites to a rich girl that's recently died but she was rumored to be a witch and he has to stay in this crypt with her body in an open casket for three days and three nights for three nights sorry and every night she wakes up and she starts tormenting him And there's some beautiful imagery that I think still remains intensely creepy to this day of this beautiful, super pale young woman. She kind of looks like a drowned woman, literally floating around really quickly in an open coffin, but sitting up in the coffin all around this guy who is in a sort of magical protective circle clutching at this Bible absolutely terrified out of his wits and she starts every night her taunting of him gets much more intense so she conjures up demons and visions to try to get him to leave so that she um can kind of haunt everyone else or that she so that he can leave the protective circle and she can hurt him and he it's kind of the idea of both the superstition of the little village where he's doing these rites, his own disbelief in anything supernatural and then being confronted by it. And this, the witch is really a supportive character and she's already dead. She's gone, but she comes back from the grave just to torture this one guy. And the imagery, I mean, the effects are really interesting to watch because, you know, it's made in the, in the Soviet Union in the sixties. And it's still quite creepy, especially kind of this this image of the floating, really kind of dizzying image of the witch trying to torment this young student. And he's so terrified that his hair turns white. And kind of every day he has to go back into the village and kind of know that he has to go back into the crypt at night to continue with the with the last rites. So I definitely recommend people oh try to find it. Yeah. This sounds, where can I, because I haven't seen it. Is there anywhere I can find it? Where, where can I 
see this amazing Soviet 1960s witch movie. Oh, man. Yeah. Also, it was remade in 2014, but I don't recommend that version. It's very CGI heavy. But this one, I believe, is on a official YouTube channel. So it's not uh, a pirate YouTube channel with English subtitles mm. because Mosfilm, which used to be the, the biggest kind of Soviet production house, the official one, uh, uploaded a whole bunch of uh, classic um, Soviet classics with optional subtitles. So I believe you can find it there. Oh my God, amazing. I'm going to totally seek that out. That sounds like a good um, isolation watch. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> also, it's got that sort of like folk horror creepiness. So yeah, big recommend. Sounds well up my street. <laughs> so what's on your number 11, Becky? Okay, so number 11 is um, The Blair Witch from 1999's The Blair Witch Project. Oh, we're doing a documentary yeah. about The Blair Witch. Oh. oh, have you heard of The Blair Witch? Oh yeah, that, that's an old, old, old story. When I put this on my list, I was kind of in two minds about it because how can a witch be one of your favorite witches if you don't even really get to see her um or you don't even technically know for sure that she exists you know the whole <laughs> point of the Blair Witch Project um I guess is is this investigation into whether it's a myth or folklore or you know whether it's all in people's heads but I think that's one of the things that kind of makes her makes makes the idea of the Blair Witch um quite so interesting because you know the Blair Witch Project is easily one of the scariest films that I've ever seen it's one of my scariest cinema experiences um which I saw you know with my dad when it first came out and then I didn't re-watch it for years and years and years and years because I was so scared of it and then re-watched it um I think last year at the BFI for the second time only and got a really similar experience it still really really scared me and this idea of um a witch kind of you know myths around witches is I feel so kind of um entangled up with um, the idea of of witches on screen and and whether people believe somebody is a witch, whether someone is accused of being a witch and they deny it, whether somebody claims they're a witch and nobody believes them, whether somebody says there's a witch who's kind of cursed them or um, is you know doing kind of evil in the area and that's why bad things are happening, and just this idea that you know one of the scariest um, kind of screen iterations of in um, inverted commas, uh, which I know you love on a podcast, Anna, um, yep. uh, inverted commas, you know, witchcraft um, is this idea that, you know, uh, we don't technically see her. We don't even really know if it was, is all just a myth. And if it is all just a myth, what the hell happened to those kids in the woods? So um, very good choice. And also I programmed that screening and I was there too. I remember you. Yeah, you were. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's such a, it's aged so wonderfully, that film. And it's really tense and it keeps you guessing. And it's astounding how much power she wields without us ever really 
knowing her. We know things about her, but we're mm. never quite sure which one of those are true or what the extent of her powers is. Exactly. On number 10 of our ultimate, absolutely undisputed top 13 witches of screen of all time <laughs> is, <laughs> is Dario Argento's Inferno from 1980. Haven't you understood? Mater Tenebrarum. Mater Lacrimarum. Mater Susperiorum. But men call us by a single name. A name which strikes fear into everyone's heart. They call us... Now, this is controversial to two people, and one of them being me, because this is not the better known of Argento's Three Mothers trilogy, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, Suspiria, obviously, its sequel Inferno, and the much maligned Mother of Tears, which came mm-hmm. much, much later down the, down the line. But I have to say, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of all the Suspirias, Argento Suspiria one and Nino Suspiria. We've covered all of those films on this podcast, but Inferno in particular, I like the most out of them because it doesn't have the same intensity visual or aesthetic intensity as Suspiria but the witch that it portrays is a lot more devious and I think she's a lot more menacing than Mater Suspiriorum in Suspiria because she and it's it's she's always there and she is essentially death and she's playing around with the characters with her victims in the film as if she was a cat playing around with her food she's sort of toying with them before she gets to them and i love that because it's such a constant menacing presence it's you know she could be anyone she could be she could be another student in the in the university. She could be the killer. She could be a victim. She could be someone's assistant. She could be the freaking cat that appears in one of the scenes, which is still haunting me to this day. There's a random cat that's always staring at one of the lead characters. But and it also has kind of a couple of really beautiful and visceral and violent set pieces as well that I think deserve kind of to be better known, particularly the underwater scenes. And it essentially works as a detective story in a way where people are just trying to find out this architecture or the source of the power of these three mothers. And it really expands. And arguably, maybe it's a little bit ham-fisted because Argento was so successful with the first with Suspiria that, you know, he had to deliver a sequel. But... I quite I quite enjoy that myth building. I quite enjoy it because it's based on De Quincey's, you know, sort of inspired by De Quincey's essays, and it, it greatly expands uh, a lot of kind of classical ideas and classical myths, and takes something really poetic and abstract and tries to give it form. And it is still poetic and abstract, but then it's sort of related to cities and architecture and how these witches control people and dominate their lives and take over kind of other people's talents and abilities and their souls in a way so i think there's a lot of um it's it argento's films are not necessarily kind of plot heavy but i think there's something quite special and unique and really intensely creepy about inferno 
Yeah, I completely agree. I'm a I'm a huge fan, and um, it's so I haven't seen Mother of Tears, um, be, mainly because you know I hear from everybody that I trust that uh, it is much maligned and you know not necessarily worth the effort. Unnecessary is a good word for that film. Unnecessary. Uh, that sometimes that's even worse though. That kind of <laughs> feeling of like, oh, why did you even bother? You know. Um, but Suspiria and um, Inferno, you know, are they they really do kind of create these um, these witches who you're right, this kind of like insidiousness of them. And, and you get this real idea of them kind of working their machinations behind the scenes, um, which I always find with like occult stuff really, really scary. So, yeah, huge fan. So moving on to, oh my God, we're in the top 10 now. Moving on to number nine, Becky. Ooh. Okay, so I have gone for um, Thomasin from The Witch, from 2015's The Witch by Robert Eggers. It was I. Liar. It was I what stole him. I be the witch of the wood. Liar. Liar. I am. Listen not to a mercy. I am that very witch. When I sleep, my spirit slips away from my body and dances naked with the devil. The reason I've gone for Thomasin is I think she is this brilliant capsule representation of those uh, kind of New England um, uh, sort of Salem based witch trials and this idea that people would point the finger and it was so difficult for a woman who showed any kind of uh, want for independence or any kind of mind of her own, any sort of deviation at all from um, the, the, the status quo, the way things, you know, should be. And, you know, maligned them and and heaped uh, kind of accusations on them. And there was just there was no discourse for them to kind of come back. And, you know, there's been incredible satires based on exactly that, you know, um, you know, well, how am I supposed to prove something that I'm not? And I think that Thomasin's character in The Witch is this really kind of I find it very satisfying in that, you know, she spends this whole film being accused of things that she hasn't done, not just witchcraft, but things like, you know, stealing, things like not looking after the children when she's supposed to, etc. Um, and really, you know, she's got no agency, no control over her life. All of the, the decisions um, that kind of get her where she is and going forward into her future are completely outside of her control. You know, whether she's sent to live with another family because, you know, she's becoming a woman or, you know, all of that stuff. It's all completely out of her hands. And she eventually just gets the ultimate kind of recourse for that in that all of the the accusations that have been thrown at her that have really culminated in her family believing that she is a witch the witch of the woods that has been cursing um the farm and the family um and you know she she really just gets to kind of 
it brings this real direct link between witchcraft and the devil, you know, after her whole world has been turned upside down and everything has gone to complete shit. She speaks to the devil and says, all right, fine. You know, why not? What else am I going to do? What can you give me? What can you offer? Um, and that, you know, I know that there's there's a little controversy over that closing scene, but that beautiful moment, I think it's a beautiful moment when she lifts up into the air, kind of cackling into the night um, is just is just hugely cathartic. And in a lot of ways, I wish that um, all of the women who had been accused of witchcraft over the years, the kind of ultimate the ultimate result of that was that they did become witches and kind of lay waste to everything around them. <laughs> Honestly, I agree with you. That ending is beautiful. And also, frankly, if the devil in the shape of a goat comes to you and just says to you, do you want to live deliciously? Mm -hmm. Yeah, sign me up. Yeah, 100%. After I've been living off of kind of like rotten corn and sad looking bread and I've been um thrown out of the township and like after my own mother tries to kill me accusing me of every sort of evil that could have possibly occurred to the family when everything was literally probably the fault of the dad anyway because he's the one who made the decision but yes I would like to live deliciously thank you very much Mr. Devil yeah yeah Give me butter, give me pretty dresses and make me fly. I, I will take it. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you mentioned butter in particular. <laughs> yeah. So the next one on my list, number eight, is Rosemary's Baby from 1968. Hello, how are you? Fine. Uh, yeah, come in a minute. Yes, of course. Please do. Uh, just come over to thank you for saying those nice things to us the other night. Oh, please. Poor Terry. We thought maybe we failed her some way. Though her note made it crystal clear we hadn't. She'll never know how helpful it was in such a shock moment. So I do thank you. Roman does, too. Roman's my hubby. You're welcome. I'm glad I could help. Yeah. Well, she was cremated yesterday. Now we got to forget and go on. It won't be easy with only children of our own, you haven't. No, we don't. Well, there you And in particular, and we haven't covered this film on, on the podcast, but my favorite witch in this is Minnie Castavet, who is played by Ruth Gordon, who is a very warm and unexpected, unexpectedly evil presence. So I was only familiar with her through her work in Harold and Maude. She played Maude. And I love that film. And seeing her in this role, she's kind of, you know, a ditzy neighbor to the young glam couple that are, that are played by Mia Farrow and John Cassavetes. And then, obviously, spoilers from a film from 1968, but the point is that Mia Farrow has been inseminated by the devil, which is not a sentence I'd ever thought I would say in my life. <laughs> the neighbors are Satanists and kind of devil worshippers, and they're trying to bring on the birth of the Antichrist, and they need a, a human female host. So John Cassavetes, babe but terrible husband, um, sells his wife essentially to the devil uh, to bear the Antichrist in exchange for a successful Hollywood career. The main thrust of this is the fact that 
Ruth Gordon, and Minnie in particular, is on the surface a warm, bubbly, ditzy, like lovely neighbor. The sort of neighbor that one doesn't imagine having in a big city anymore. Kind of welcoming, maybe a bit overbearing, but sort of kind of reminds you either of your gran or your auntie or your mother. And then actually everything is manipulation. And Mm -hmm. because Ruth is such a brilliant, such a charismatic actress as well, she really, you know, she's tiny, she's really diminutive. And when you rewatch it, when you know what's actually happening, it becomes such a threatening presence because it's sort of the the wolf in sheep's clothing approach. You know, there are bits that she does that obviously on rewatch kind of gain extra layers. And it's an incredibly dense and layered film. But I find her really interesting because she doesn't fit in any mold of a screen witch. You know, she's not chasing after beauty. She's not chasing after eternal youth. She is a servant to Mm. the devil. You know, she's doing what needs to be done in order to achieve a goal. You know, she's project managing the birth of the Antichrist, essentially. And... (laughs) (laughs) I would kill to see that Gantt chart. (laughs) Sentences I never thought I'd say. Um, (laughs) The thing is that it kind of taps into this. I've always lived in big cities. And the thing that you get from living in big cities is that you don't really have that neighborly trust in people. You know, you don't trust random people in the street. You don't trust random people that come up to your house. And it really taps into that paranoia, I think, of living in a in a big major city. In the case of Rosemary's Baby, they're in New York. Of, you know, even people who are seemingly trying to be good to you and friendly and open might be hiding something and might be after something. And that kind of paranoid aspect of it uh, really, really still kind of terrifies me. And the devotion, kind of the faith, behind Minnie's character and that whole little sect or little coven of uh, devil worshippers. That's a terrifying bit because that sort of faith will make people do anything. And, you know, you can apply that to real life, but seeing that kind of represented uh, with a cult in an occult setting removes it just a little bit from reality in order to work as a piece of fiction and obviously this is based on a, on a really amazing Ira Levin novel. It's terrifying because it relates it's just one it's terrifying because it's just one step away from something very real and and again I think um, you know as you were talking about with um, Inferno this idea of witchcraft and, and the occult being so powerful that this apparently outwardly um, kind and thoughtful neighbor um and also you know uh, guy rosemary's husband you know the, these people who who on the face of it are so uh, trustworthy and you know have all your best interests at heart but you know there's there's something kind of insidious going on uh kind of just below the surface and people like um People like Minnie are so good at kind of hiding that and and drawing people in. And yeah, that's what kind of makes her so effective. You're right, it's terrifying. (laughs) Moving on to number seven. My number seven is 
So I've gone controversial in some ways because I've gone for a male witch in your in your feminist podcast, Anna. Oh my uh, god! But you know, feminism feminism includes all, and I like to think that Nikki from Bell Book and Candle would be very much a feminist ally. <laughs> I like to live in the grey areas of feminism and I don't think that this podcast or myself ever label one thing as feminist or unfeminist. And also Jack Lemon can like be welcome to any podcast or anything I ever do. I know he's long gone, but still his cinematic self. Thank you. Perfect. Well, here he is. Um, so yeah, my my next pick is um, Nikki Holroyd from um, 1958's Bell Book and Candle. What's it for? It's for summoning. You're supposed to take this liquid and you paint it on an image or a drawing or a photograph of anybody that you want and then you set fire to it and shoo, they gotta come to you. <laughs> Found it in a new little shop. So we did a really fun episode um, right back at the start of your series where we talked about this brilliant movie. And it might sort of seem unusual, I guess, that I didn't go for Gil. I didn't go for, you know, the main character um, and, you know, her her beauty and her um, her incredible witchy wardrobe and her wonderful um, familiar uh, pie whack it you know it's it may seem unusual that you know Gil isn't the one isn't the witch that I've gone for but I think one of the things that we really hit upon when we did the deep dive into the film is actually her character by the end of it isn't super satisfying because she we do have this um plot arc where actually she kind of gives up her powers for love and um you know ends up running a slightly vanilla looking flower shop whereas what made her so um, appealing at the beginning of the film was you know her her magic and her kind of her witchiness so I have instead gone for Nikki who is Gil's brother as you say played by the wonderful magical Jack Lemon um, and the reason for that is that Nikki kind of he is the type of witch who um uses magic just for fun like for um everyday life he hasn't got any um nefarious plans he hasn't got anything where he's kind of in league with the devil trying to bring about the second coming of um you know the antichrist he uh he isn't kidnapping babies and mashing them up to make himself stay young he is just playing jazz in 1950s New York, um, buying nice Christmas presents for his family, playing little pranks like turning the street lights on and off and making car um, horns honk while people are making out in the front seat. And he is basically just living his best life, but beautifully um, augmented by the, the witchy powers that he's got. And I really love that side of witchcraft, that slightly more kind of kitchen sink side of things where you are using your powers, not for the greater good, not for any particular evil, but just to kind of make everyday life a little easier and a little more fun. I think it's a great pick. You know, Nikki, Nikki is a really basic little witch and that is absolutely fine. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, I think he he's delightful, and I think in the hands of any performer less skilled than Jack Lemon would have been really forgettable. But he makes him so appealing, so charming, kind of effortlessly so. You know, he's sort of a a pan esque figure. You know, he's just up to mischief. He's never gonna do any terrible, mm-hmm. massive, horrible deeds. He might, you know throw your hat off your head or something like that you know he might trip you a little bit but he we never really see him do anything evil or even want to he's mostly just out to have a good time and it's such a kind of convenient and I would say even relatable approach to witchcraft because frankly if most of us had witchy powers and that didn't involve communing with the devil then maybe you know all we'd want to do is just make our you know delivery come a little bit quicker or just materialize or <laughs> just gonna try exactly. on clothes <laughs> i mean how you know how much more fun would it have made the the COVID-19 crisis. I mean, forget about the possibilities about maybe finding a cure for the virus. You know, obviously that would be number one priority. But beyond that, we could be magicking ourselves up all the foods that we want. We could be magicking our kind of friends, you know, into the room so that we could chat to them without getting infected. Like it would have made this whole thing a hell of a lot easier. Yeah, you know, you'd like run a bubble bath and you just make all the water like pink and purple without having to pay six pounds for a goddamn bath bomb. (laughs) That's way too specific. (laughs) (laughs) Is that is that bath bomb bitterness I'm hearing, Anna? (laughs) No, it isn't. It definitely isn't. I think that's a great pick. And also a, a really, I mean, not so rare in, you know, the post Harry Potter world, but it is kind of rare, especially at that time, to see a male witch who's as playful as Nikki. Mm-hmm. So we're on number six now. And I've gone for a bit of Disney. And this is not a film that we covered. We covered another Disney film with, we covered another Disney film, namely Maleficent. But I've got The Little Mermaid and specifically Ursula the Sea Witch on there. In my day, we had fantastical feasts when I lived in the palace. And now look at me, wasted away to practically nothing. Banished and exiled and practically starving while he and his flimsy fish folks celebrate. Well, I'll give them something to celebrate soon enough. Now, amazing. Yes. Uh, this has absolutely nothing to do with the fact that it is my favorite Disney film from when I was growing up and that I definitely did not see it a hundred thousand times and I definitely haven't seen it this year and I definitely haven't seen the whole life stage version of The Little Mermaid as well nothing to do with that this is all about (laughs) Ursula and we alluded to it a little bit before but I know everybody has their favorite Disney film and The Little Mermaid is obviously based on the Hans Christian Andersen novel uh, which is i actually really recommend because it's a lot darker than the Disney adaptation but 
the portrayal of Ursula in this is so iconic. And I don't use that word lightly. Ursula's design as this kind of beautiful, larger-than-life, voluptuous, half-octopus, half-woman who's wearing, you know, like, a very revealing octopus dress. I don't know. And kind of has this wild hair. You know, she's stylistically based on uh, the way that Divine used to do their makeup. And, you know, so obviously that's not a reference that I could catch when I watched this as a little girl. When you grow up, it sort of changes. And I know that kind of my allegiance in a way to as I rewatched the film as an adult and growing up has sort of shifted towards really enjoying Ursula a lot more and she's obviously the villain and she's really bloodthirsty and she's really manipulative in many ways also a great great pitch that she does to Ariel to convince her to literally give up her voice and sign over her soul for a very bad deal so frankly in my book she did nothing wrong she was just a really really good negotiator (laughs) and it's Ariel's own damn problem that she didn't read the contract before signing it but also she has the best song in the whole film but the point being that like she's got this kind of revenge ambition against the king and you know the over-the-top sexuality that she exudes as well I'm not quite sure at who she kind of just is entirely pansexual and I think it's one of those Disney films of the golden age of Disney that really gains other readings and other layers as you grow older and it's still just as enjoyable and I'd highly also recommend digging out Queen Latifah performing as Ursula the Sea Witch in the live performance, live stage performance, which was broadcast on American television and is now all on YouTube. I've never, I've never been so flabbergasted and kind of delighted by this real life version of the sea witch that I never imagined. And that is so absolutely goddamn perfect and charming. Same combination of sensuality and evil and fun and manipulation and just kind of hunger in a way like she seems like a woman that's always been overlooked for a promotion and then she got angry and she started playing the same tricks that other people have always played on her so then she's kind of out to get some and I'm obviously here creating a backstory for the fictional Ursula prequel that I have written in my head but <laughs> I think it stems also a hardcore queer icon as well oh a hundred percent and everything that you've said about kind of um you know the the bits that you don't pick up when you're a kid kind of overtly so you know that sexuality that she's got um, the the links to divine and you know her her character design around that it's it's amazing what when you're an adult and you kind of see where the um where the influences for characters come from when you're a kid all you pick up on is she's cool she's attractive she's um fascinating she you know And I know she's the villain, but one of the things that Disney has always done, you know, Maleficent is another fantastic example. Um, 
one of the things that Disney's always done well is is created villains who are attractive and you do kind of keep want to want you do want to keep watching them and you know they have cool songs and their costume design is always amazing and Ursula really just kind of you know she's the the epitome of that and all of the stuff that is heaped into her character design and um you know that kind of power that she exudes um in the animation when you're a kid you don't necessarily know where that comes from but you still kind of you still get it you know it still works on you and that's one of the things I love most moving on into number five and we're now in the top five I'm excited even though I know what the top five is okay so my next entry on the greatest witch list ever compiled is Asa or Asa from um, 1960s Black Sunday played by, and again, not using this word lightly, but played by the iconic Barbara Steele in the um, incredible uh, Mario Barber film. Grey Arby, it's I who repudiate you, and in the name of Satan, I place a curse upon you. Go ahead, tie me down to the stake, but you will never escape my hunger, nor that of Satan. Chained elements of the powers of darkness are lying in ambush. Beware, Griabi. The really weird kind of uh, interesting outlier, I guess, for this witch is she's like a vampire witch. So they were like, well, we could make her a vampire or we could make her a witch. And I think Mario Barber was just like, just make her both. I mean, you know, why why choose? Um, so she's she sort of displays these um, these powers that, as a as an audience or as you know, people who are kind of versed in the lore of these things, because we're all horror fanatics. Um, you know, you do you see these characteristics from both um, the vampire side of things and the the witchy side of things, the witchcraft. Um, And I find that really kind of fascinating and attractive as well. Like, I want to see more vampire witches, Anna. Why have we not seen more? She she has that classic um, kind of witchy sexuality and um, that that kind of ability to almost like telepathically and emotionally like draw people to her obviously Barbara Steele was this incredible looking actress um back in 1960 and you know she she really kind of embodied that amazing 1960s like um voluptuousness and the the incredible kind of cat eye makeup she's got that great big super dark glossy hair in this film and you know which the witch side of things is is she right at the beginning of the film we see her as a victim of a um a burning at the stake and she has this horrific death mask like literally hammered onto her face which is one it's still one of the most like terrifying and brutal things um so and bad. then on top of all of that, oh, Anna, it's so bad. It's really gruesome, even now. And then obviously when um, the the doctor like takes it off of her and she's got all of those holes. 
balls just like in her face. And, you know, the makeup that they do on um, on Barbara Steele is kind of, you know, the, the dead witch when she's in her in her coffin in the tomb um, is still, you know, again, for sort of, um, you know, a, a 1960 Mario Bava horror film. You know, it's it's really kind of like her eyes are really gross and yeah it's it's really effective so you get like a real kind of sense of the horror of the witch um even though that doesn't necessarily come from her being a crone or from her um being you know that kind kind of coming from her powers that that hideousness of the the makeup in this film really does create horror around this character um, and then, you know, you get the vampire side of things and she is um, having to kind of suck the blood of her doppelganger to bring herself properly back to life. I mean, this is just the stuff of proper, um, proper kind of, you know, old school horror that I think is, you know, as I say, just iconic. It's one of the, the classic witch films. Do you think actually it's it's underrated as a witch film? But it's also one of the early examples of a very familiar trope and one that particularly kind of exists in 60s horror of the vengeful witch, you know, the witch that comes back from the dead, whether resurrected or risen, and to take revenge on the people who uh, murdered her. So it's kind of the witch as a victim Mm. as well, to a degree as a victim and of as her own avenger and you know you sort of see this in a lot of the films that we've already mentioned you know it kind of works in the same way with with the maybe with the Blair Witch Project for sure kind of you know there's this idea of the of the woman who whether she is actually a witch or not is banished or burned by her society and then she comes back empowered to take her revenge it's a gorgeous yeah it's a gorgeous and gruesome film and definitely one for people to seek out a hundred percent and another one obviously that you screened which i was at so uh you know keep it up (laughs) so we're now moving on to number four and i've picked from american horror story coven Mary Laveau, as portrayed by one of the greatest actresses ever, Angela Bassett. You're supposed to be ridding me of my enemies. Instead, they're mouthier than ever, showing up on my doorstep, disrespecting me, digging up my enemies. When I plant a fat-ass cracker bitch, I expect her to stay planted, not come back up like goddamn ragweed. And I'd be on up, doing my best year like that best year. Our best year. They desecrated you. And I brought you back life and she took it away again. Well, now we take hers and all. No more nonsense. You go back there and you bring me their heads. All of them. 100% amazing. So for anyone who's not familiar or as devoted to American Horror Story as I am, uh, this was their third season, which was all about witches. And usually every season of American Horror Story looks into a horror trope. You know, there's haunted houses and serial killers and cults. And this one was about witches. And, you know, this is also marks the first collaboration of Angela Bassett with the series. And Angela Bassett, a stunning, absolutely just domineering presence on the screen. 
but most importantly and it's 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 a flaw as with everything to do with american horror story i love it but i also see its flaws it's a flawed series and it's a flawed season and there's many issues with the way that this particular character is developed but it marks the first kind of screen adaptation of what i think is one of the most fascinating real life women who lived ever but in particular in the 19th century and that's Marie Laveau and we went a little bit in depth into who she was in the episode dedicated to that season now aside from all the jokes around American Horror Story and Coven in particular the fact of the matter is that you pick this extraordinary super capable actress to portray one of the most fascinating women that ever lived you know whether she was a real life witch or you know she was a a real life woman she's a historical character this is a fact you know she lived in the 19th century in in new orleans and she was a huge influence she's still an immense influence on the city on the region you know if you visit new orleans her grave in one of the kind of famous cemeteries there is still one of those visited um, tourist attractions you know all the voodoo shops have her iconography she is kind of a name that is synonymous with the practice of voodoo you know she was known as the voodoo queen of new orleans whether you believe in that stuff or not and there's obviously a whole nother separation to be made between witchcraft and voodoo and hoodoo and that's a much denser Mm. conversation and I'm by no means an expert in that I've just always been fascinated by her and I came across her in history books but I'd never seen her on the screen and it always really annoyed me that her story as many other stories have not been adapted when they're so regardless of whether it's just a real life human being or the supernatural element of her story it's so fucking fascinating and angela bassett you know with all the problems that coven has and the way that that character in particular is treated just brings so much life to her and i God, I wish there was a big screen adaptation of Marie LeBeau's life where she portrays her again. And, you know, she kind of lives between the 19th century when she was at her heyday and in kind of contemporary New Orleans. Mm -hmm. To be honest, with all its flaws, I'm just grateful that there is a version of Marie LeBeau on the screen and that it might ignite some interest in who she was and her legacy and is it the best version of her is it the most historically accurate one is it the most well-written one no but she is played by angela bassett there yeah that's pretty much it she's played by angela bassett i think that's enough (laughs) she's played by angela bassett you know what more do you need to say yeah exactly like two words angela bassett that's it go watch it It is, she is amazing. She is just, I mean, I think you used the word electric, which is absolutely correct. Um, and I I don't know a great deal about Marie Laveau and her um, kind of, you know, her real life story. And really my only access point to her is through American Horror Story Coven um, and Angela Bassett's phenomenal performance. 
Um, so what I think I need to do, firstly, is we need to start working on um, some kind of uh, campaign to get a big screen version made. And also I need to start reading because I assume there's got to be some decent um, biographies of her out there. Oh, listen, I've got them all. I can lend you some. Oh, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. No, I mean, I, I'm curious without knowing the, the, the backstory of her, what did you make of Farrah Lavoe as a character? Um, I think the main thing that I really took away from her portrayal in the show is just like that, the power just like rolls off of her. You know, she's she's both a, a an extremely kind of captivating and um, almost intimidating person even before you know that she holds any kind of supernatural abilities or like voodoo power um and you know I think again that really just comes from Angela Bassett's performance um she out out of that series because I was I mean you know we won't go a deep dive into the series but out of the American Horror Story um seasons um I was actually kind of disappointed with Coven because after the first two, which I loved so much, and then I was like, oh my God, the next season's going to be witches. It kind of didn't do with witches and witchcraft what I necessarily wanted it to. Um, but kind of, if I think back to it now, it's it's Marie Laveau and, you know, Angela Bassett that is one of the first kind of images that pops into my head because her character and performance was just so strong we're not gonna do a deep dive here because i've got a whole nother podcast for that <laughs> <laughs> um yeah you should if you're interested in american horror story self-plug i should definitely listen to their next supremes which is the whole american horror story rewatch podcast that i do with clarice lockray and i'm hoping that you can rewatch coven and then also you get all the good witch shit as well in uh, in Apocalypse, which is season eight. Amazing. Well, my plan is um, to listen along to your podcast and kind of rewatch along. And I'm excited to get to Coven because I haven't watched any episodes of that season since it first aired. Um, so obviously oh that's God. quite a while. And um, I'm hoping that going back to it, maybe I get more out of it on second watch. So I'm really excited. I hope so. Right. So moving on swiftly, we're now in top three. So who is on <gasps> number three for you, Becky? So we're sticking with TV. And from American Horror Story, we're going to Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And it will probably surprise nobody that my number three is Willow Rosenberg. Hello. Where do you keep the Black Arts books? Something terrible has happened, I know, but you don't have to do... I need power. Not with those books. I can't let you. Willow! Again, you know, we looked at um, witchcraft in Buffy together and did an amazing and super fun deep dive into the way that witchcraft is presented in the show. Um, and Willow is kind of, you know, she's the centre point for that. And what really strikes me about her character is the development and how you really see those first seeds of her interest 
in witchcraft, you know, coming from, um, you know, really kind of influential people in her life, Giles and Jenny Callender, um, and, you know, her kind of dealings with Amy and her interest kind of blossoming from there, coming from this place of, you know, intense curiosity that she has for the world. She loves learning, you know, she's a bit of a a bookworm and you know she loves kind of using all the tools around her to keep increasing her knowledge and you know for Willow knowledge is absolutely power and so you see that and her start to study it and then all the way through to the um, conclusion of the show at the end of season seven where she's basically become the most powerful witch slash goddess in the world and you know, she goes through so many ups and downs um, in her life, which are so beautifully kind of paralleled by her power as a witch, whether that is, um, you know, finding extra power through her relationship with Tara, whether it is um, really kind of hitting some real lows when she is hanging out with Amy later on and you know there really is this kind of strong parallel and metaphor around drug addiction and her use of the magics um to season six where she really goes like full off the um off the deep end evil dark willow where she's shooting lightning out of her fingers and stuff and then coming kind of um to the end of the series when she is again kind of regaining this control over her power really learning about kind of the roots of it and studying with covens in England and um, sort of starting to kind of really understand quite how far she can push it without it going uh, kind of dark and black-eyed and veiny Um, you know she's just she's just willow and at, at the the center of her character she is you know she is willow and that is why her journey as a witch is so uh kind of captivating for me because you know it comes from this place of her just being you know willow rosenberg that girl that a lot of us fell in love with in season 1 and sort of seeing her come that full um arc over to to the end of season 7 is just amazing beautifully put i also encourage everyone who's more interested in buffy to seek out becky's mini season on buffy the vampire slayer over on the evolution of horrors patreon page it's really good but i think you really nail nail it there when you describe kind of willow as the witch equivalent of kind of knowledge as power because one of the really beautiful things about her is that she is not born as the chosen one she's not presented as such at all her whole evolution as a witch is very parallel to her evolution as a character and she's self-made entirely you know she becomes the most powerful witch in the world through sheer grafting and study Mm. and practice and practice and practice and practice and i love it because ultimately you know we spoke about this on that on that deep dive as well Ultimately, she exemplifies what it's like for most of us, you know, again, extremely relatable human journeys of people who are not necessarily born with the innate ability to do something, 
bad can learn it and can acquire those abilities and you know she's uh she's also a a really ethical and good witch and she her curiosity is really contagious and her desire is not so much for power it's for knowledge it's to know more to be able to do more and that's really I mean it is a time investment there's seven seasons but it's really beautiful to watch and I think her evolution as a character is almost much more interesting than Buffy's who is our protagonist in many ways Mm. yeah agreed so we're now moving on to number two which Mm. is for me, the Grand High Witch, as portrayed by Angelica Houston in The Witches. Witches of England. Your disgrace. Miserable witches. Your good-for-nothing worms. Everywhere I look. I see the repulsive sight of hundreds. Thousands of revolting little children. I ask you, why? I did this on this on. I did the same thing on the episode. I always have to sigh and just kind of ready myself to talk about the film. <laughs> deep breath, deep breath. So again, weirdly, a childhood film, but a very interesting one. But. It's a Nicholas Rogue film who is quite well known, I think, in the horror scene because he directed Don't Look Now. He also did quite um, beautiful and esoteric and out there films like Performance with Mick Jagger and Bad Timing with Art Garfunkel. And um, he also did this really bizarre, really terrifying adaptation of Roald Dahl's The Witches. It's a 1990 film and it essentially follows a witch convention in a little British seaside hotel. And this, both in the novel and the film, the witches basically exist only to hate and try to kill as many children as possible. It's not because the children give them a life force or give them youth like in Hocus Pocus. It's not to achieve anything. It's just pure sadism. You know, they just hate children. They physically <laughs> cannot tolerate them. And they're portrayed as quite uh, plain looking women who actually are wearing the disguise of plain looking women. And actually underneath they're, you know, got extreme hooked noses. They're bald. They've got kind of horrific toes and talons you know so they wear this sort of human disguise and the the episode kind of with Tara really deep dives into some of the quite dark symbolism behind this imagery but the witch that I wanted to talk about is their leader you know an almost fascistic like character the Grand High Witch who's played by Angelica Houston and she goes back and forth between a deeply unpleasant ugly character who is literally the most horrific she's wearing the most horrific prosthetics on her and this is angelica houston Mm. in 1990 okay she is gorgeous tall beautiful super striking wearing like very very striking makeup as well like big red lips blue eyeshadow eyeliner 
super skimpy, little black dress, high heels, the whole shebang. You know, Jack Nicholson was sending her flowers to the set all day long. This is like Angelica Houston at her (laughs) absolute physical peak. And she just exudes this power. Like she walks into a room and everybody will turn around. And there is a type of person who has that power innately anyway. And she kind of taps into that. But then she's also this extremely grotesque witch. As a horrible hunchback. You know, she's bald. She's got the biggest nose. And she's still wearing all the makeup. You know, she's got these wispy hairs coming out of warts. You know, the dress is still on her. But it's sort of like fitting onto a bulbous kind of way too skinny Jabba the Hutt type monster thing and it's almost difficult to describe but there's also this image which is quite famous so you know when you google the witches 1990 the first image that will pop up is gorgeous beautiful Angelica Houston ripping off half of her scalp and revealing like a really gross eczema ridden wispy haired bulbous head underneath it's really grotesque but by yeah. the way, this is a children's film, so yeah. <laughs> so it's really impactful in many ways because you see it as a kid, and it makes you terrified of ladies because all the witches in the film look like your mom's friends, maybe like your mom. They look like the women next door. They look like the sort of women that if you were ever in trouble on the street, you kind of run to them for help. But actually, all they Mm want to do is kill you because they don't like kids. So there's a lot of really, really um, quite dark undertones to it. But I think still now, it's such a bizarre film. It's such a notorious film. You know, Nick Rogue is one of the greatest filmmakers that ever lived, I think. And his style and his approach to cinema is so unique and it really works for something like this. You know, they're really sadistic creatures that the witches in this. And they're so devoted to this grand high witch as well. So there's the double combo of power of someone who has magical powers, but also someone who has power over everyone else of their kind. And it sort of taps again into a very scary human into a very scary human nature of following someone kind of to the end like if they point over a cliff you will jump and that's really scary because it's the way that um some leaders are elect themselves and put themselves in this position of power and then decide that they're the ones who have the right to rule over people and the idea that a children's film and a performance can tap into that and still work as both essentially a a comment on fascism and work as a really standard, really effective, as a cautionary tale for children is really stunning. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, the... You're so right about Nicholas Rogue's um, filmmaking style. I, You know, nobody else could have made um, The Witches like he did. You know, that it, it would have been very, very easy to, um, you know, create another film out of um, Roald Dahl's book and, you know, in 1990 and even maybe cast the same people. But there's something about Nicholas Rogue's approach to it that 
it's just got horror absolutely woven into the fabric of this film and that scene of um you know the sort of main convention meeting when they're all in the room and the grand high witch is at the kind of front of the room on the stage and at first she's exactly as you describe you know peak angelica houston and then she takes off her wig and it kind of pans across you know the the aisles of um as you say sort of just little old ladies but as they're peeling their wigs off and that that grotesque makeup is becoming uncovered and they're kind of scratching at their scalps because they itch and they're taking their shoes off so that you know their their sort of funny toes or lack of lack thereof can kind of breathe and it is you know for kids who grew up around a similar time that we did it is one of those films that I think comes up um you know time and time again in kind of those kids that those those films that like fucked you up as a child um and Angelica Houston again you know just walks that tightrope so beautifully between that um that beautiful uh you know kind of again almost like Pied Piper type character um and then you know that true grotesque um witch figure kind of underneath it's just I mean yeah position on the list fully deserved yep and also you know just the again very weird sexiness which she brings to the performance you know she's slinking away like she's literally going to meet Jack it's it's a very very thoughtful very designed but still such an edgy performance I think absolutely yeah amazing Okay, so we're up to number one. I don't have drums, so I can't really do a drum roll. And I'm not going to try to mime a drum roll because I can't really do that either. But this is the one film that we both agreed on. Yep, we shared our lists. And this it literally was. This was the one, you know, that we both had on here. So where else was it going to go except for number one? And what a beautiful way to round up this whole series, because this was the first episode that we did in the in the Witcher series. And we're obviously talking about the craft. Now, we didn't get to speak about this film. Do you have a favorite witch in the craft? There's four main witches, all teens, all kind of gothy, all kind of outcast, all fabulous. But do you have a favorite one? <laughs> I do have a favourite. Um, yeah, so it's Bonnie, played by the incredible Nev Campbell, um, who, you know, in her own right, is a kind of 90s teen horror queen. Bonnie, what's wrong? Did you know that... every morning I wake up and for a few seconds I think I'm normal? And then I remember... Maybe this time the doctors will... No, the doctors have no idea what they're doing. The thing is with Bonnie is, you know, there's... I think it could be argued that the two main... You know, if there were going to be... If there were going to be two out of the four who maybe the story beats were more centralised around, I would argue it was um, Nancy and Sarah. And then Bonnie and Rochelle are not kind of sidekicks, but their their stories just take um, maybe a, a, a slightly kind of 
second tier in terms of the storytelling of the film. Um, they're all really important. And actually, the the writers of the film did a fantastic job at um, giving each of the four witches kind of their own you know, motivations. Um, but with Bonnie, there's just something about that that transformation you know sarah the the spell that they kind of cast is is around you know chris and and the the kind of lust slash love going on there that kind of teen crush gone wrong um nancy you know really kind of wants her life improved and you know that happens and there's a big transformation there in terms of how um, her and her mum live Rochelle um, is, you know, the victim of horrible racial bullying. And, um, you know, she is able to kind of really turn the tables on her bully. With Bonnie and with Nev Campbell's performance, there's just something about that physical transformation, about, you know, her body language in the first part of the film where she's covered up in like multiple layers. Her hair's all greasy. We know that her back is horribly scarred. Um, but it's not just kind of the look of her skin, it's the way that she carries herself. And then as Sarah, the kind of the the fourth, this this final sister comes into their group and they realise the sort of power that they hold together, Bonnie's transformation and that extreme kind of spike in confidence that she gets um, is has always just somehow made her just, just, just stand above the other three for me. It's very sweet. I have to admit that I'm Team Nancy. You don't even exist to me! You don't even exist. You are nothing. You are shit. You don't exist. The only way you know how to treat women is by treating them like whores! When you're the whore! And that's gonna stop! and i think it's because she's she's a really interesting character i think and in part it's because she's ultimately presented as the villain she's both the Mm -hmm. de facto leader of this of this witchy gang and also horribly bullied and slut shamed in her school and there's also such deep-rooted insecurity in her you know she's very concerned with not with the way that people perceive her, but definitely with quite intense real life problems. You know, she is yeah. not from a wealthy family. You know, she's living in essentially a caravan with her mom and her mom's deadbeat, abusive husband or boyfriend or something. She just craves power, but more than anything, she craves power as a solution or as a way to get out of her situation. You know, she's literally yeah. powerless. She's at the school where she's constantly mocked. She is rejected by her peers. You know, she's an outcast in every single possible sense. And she creates this mm-hmm. outer shell of not just visually, you know, she's incredibly striking because of her presence and the way that she moves. You know, she is the most out there stylistically of the three of them you know she doesn't cower she doesn't cover herself you know she wears really bold makeup you know everything is really dark really gothy you know as a style icon 
unparalleled in you know 90s teen horror but also that is the defense mechanism you know she carries all of that to create some semblance of an armor i think and witchcraft in the same way as we spoke about with willow i think for nancy is a way to achieve power that she doesn't see a way to achieve anywhere else you know is she going to win the lottery or make a lot of money we don't see an indication of that you know is she what is her way out of this horrific abusive household we don't know but you know this worshipping of Manon and this kind of approach to witchcraft that she develops and these powers that you see start manifesting as soon as Sarah joins the three of them become this lifeline for her and it's quite telling that when they invoke Manon and they all ask for specific things, all of the girls, the rest of the girls ask for very, you know, except for Rochelle, who is literally being horrifically bullied by a horrible racist. They're asking for things that are quite teenage girly, you know. Sarah wants to be liked by a boy and um, Bonnie wants to get rid of scars so she can feel like a, like a, like a, normal teenage girl again mm-hmm. and nancy goes deeper than that she wants all the power she wants all the power she wants to walk on water she wants to be able to destroy everyone she wants to be able to avenge people and i also find that she's quite like an avenging angel to a degree you know she goes off on chris who after he tries to rape Sarah, you know, she takes revenge Mm -hmm. on her friend. And, you know, there's a lot of problematics and complications with that that we're not going to go into now. But I think it's quite telling that she doesn't um, sit still. You know, she's there. She's going to be the the uncontrolled fury of someone who is powerless. And once they get a little bit of that power, a little bit of that access... It, it goes a little bit off the reins and well, a little bit goes a lot of the reins, but I've always, <laughs> found, I've always found her to be quite a sympathetic character because I think she's, she's played beautifully by Feruza Balk. And I think she really imbues her with that sense of she's not evil. She just is sick of living in the situation that she's been living in if, in her entire life. And, you know, money doesn't fix that. We see that in the film. There's a lot of other things that overpower her and she wants to be able to respond to them. And I almost feel like she becomes a a cover girl for any girl or, you know, anyone who as a teenager or as a young person may have felt weird and out of place and not quite sure of what their identity or their path is and She's so fearless in the way that she presents herself to the world and so unapologetic about, you know, taking everything that people have been throwing at her and making that into her identity, into her persona. You know, there's obviously there's a wonderful scene where they get off the bus and the bus driver trying to be a nice man is like, watch (laughs) out for the weirdos, girls. And she sort of looks at him and smiles and it's like, we are the weirdos, mister. And obviously it's an iconic line, but it's it's a statement of intent as well. You know, it's a declaration of like, actually, babes, I'm going to be OK because I'm going to be the yeah. one that people need to be afraid of or 
I'm very yeah. confident in who I am myself. You know, she's not an insecure character. And I think that also makes her quite generous to her friends in the film. So in many ways, iconic, absolutely iconic, which not just of the 90s, not just for teenage girls, but also on quite, I think, profound levels and did not deserve that ending. Just gonna say, didn't deserve the ending. I agree. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. Oh my God. Outrageous behaviour towards Nancy. Just kind of sticking her in a um, straight jacket and, you know, leaving her to rot, I assume, inside a padded cell while she sort of screams into the void. I mean, it's just outrageous. Get that girl some help. (laughs) Justice for Nancy. Absolutely. We've both kind of named our our favourites of the four But when you're talking about, you know, icons of the 90s, icons of of screen witches, that poster of the four of them kind of walking towards the camera away from like the lightning behind them. I mean, that is just I think there's there's a certain group of us women that that is indelibly um, just like scorched into our retinas and into our brains, you know that that feeling of power and possibility. I suppose that I used to get from watching this film when I was more contemporary to it. It was really the first time that I had seen the outcast given such power and agency and um, attention on screen. You know, a lot of other teen movies, which I love, you know, I'm not going to take away from them, but when you're kind of going through the um, the the groups at school, you know, that, that classic kind of part of any teen movie when you're going around being introduced to the jocks and the nerds and the, the A class and, you know, um, the dramas and all of that, you know, it's it's it was never one of those groups that then got the focus. And with the craft, those of us who were a little more outside of the popular gang and, you know, did like kind of dark eyeliner and learning about the slightly more um, dark and weird stuff of pop culture and, um, you know, culture in general, uh, this was the first time that I really kind of saw somebody like myself. I mean, I wasn't a goth, but somebody, you know, just a little left of centre kind of put centre stage on um, on the screen. And to see them so together as, as girls and friends and that by coming together, by bringing this forth into their group and by working um kind of complementing each other and filling each other's kind of gaps in their abilities and interests, like all of that stuff, um, creating this effect, you know, the fact that they were able to affect the world around them and kind of change the fate of what was happening. You know, when you're a teenage girl, you don't have a huge amount of power and to see it represented like that on screen was really intoxicating. And I think that's why, you know, for a lot of people kind of our sort of age, you know, that that image of those four girls is so um, central to what our idea of a witch is. Beautiful. What a way to end the series, Becky. Ah, 
I'm not going to have the last word, Anna. Come on. <laughs> Listen, you put it so beautifully. I can only just say, yes, we were all Nancy <laughs> and some of us still are. Amazing. There you go. You've done it. <laughs> Becky, thank you so much. Is there any witches that you think we've missed that we should have talked about? So the one... <laughs> The one that nearly went on my list and I didn't because we already had a Disney and um, I already had a kind of kids film with Hocus Pocus. And so I was like, no, I'm going to stick, you know, more kind of um, more horror, more sort of genre. Um, The one that I didn't put on was um, Madame Mim from Sword in the Stone. This tiny little part at the end of the film. But she is, I would say, even above Ursula and Maleficent. Madame Mim is my personal Disney go-to witch because she's just so delightfully mean-spirited. And like that whole (laughs) shtick about her, like hating horrible, wholesome sunlight and hoping that um, she's like, oh, it's just a sickly little sparrow with a beak full of soot. I do hope it's serious. You know, all of that kind of stuff. Like she's so mean and she cheats in the jewel. And again, yeah, just as a kid, I was just like, yeah, I want to play like Madame Mim. (laughs) I'm going to say I've probably got two almost ended up on my list and I didn't put the autopsy of Jane Doe on the list because it's quite similar <sighs> in in a way to the Blair Witch Project but I would say Jane Doe from the autopsy of Jane Doe again in many ways because she is an all-powerful but deeply mysterious witch and we sort of hear her story unfold through other people it sort of becomes a thing of is she a witch or does she become a witch because of the way that people have treated her in her lifetime? I think it's a really, really fascinating, yeah. really well done horror as well. Really effective as a horror film. She She's another one that is is a horror witch, isn't she? She is a yeah. scary witch and I like, I like a scary witch. <laughs> and I mean, I have to bring in Sabrina, but actually I would pick not Sabrina Spellman. But Zelda Spellman from the new adaptation, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, and she's played by Miranda Otto, who is just so cutting and so fabulous and so, again, overlooked that she has this poison determination and fury of someone who's been overlooked despite being the best at what they do. And it's kind of trying to operate by the rules that are designed to keep her in her place. And again, doing air quotes here, which I love to do. Um, (laughs) Her evolution as a character over the three series of Sabrina, I think, has been one of the most interesting ones to watch. And I love an actress like Miranda Otto, who is capable of doing very high octane, up to 11 uh, levels of performance and kind of very subdued very emotional very earnest performances as well kind of really be able to play around with all of those things with all of those ranges that is such a good choice and I think the standout thing for me with Zelda is a little bit like Nikki from Bell Book and Candle a little bit like the Grand High Witch a little bit like Winifred from um, Hocus Pocus 
Zelda really kind of revels in witchcraft. You know, she's not a reluctant witch. She's not a mm. um, student witch. She's not um, a witch who's kind of like lost her powers for one reason or another. She is a powerful witch and she fucking loves being a witch. Like mm. she loves, she loves all the stuff that comes along with being a witch. And I really respect that. I love that she, you know, she really sort of, throws herself into it and and she she lives it and I love that about Zelda she's great and you're right Miranda Rotto is phenomenal and that's it it's it for top 13 definitive most important best of all time all that listicle nonsense witches of all time and also for the for the witches series and Becky thank you again so much for putting this list together with me Anna, I mean, again, it's just been an absolute thrill. And yes, I mean, obviously, full stop, no ghosties, backsies. This is it now. It's it's in stone. So <laughs> it's a podcast which is like the internet equivalent of being set in stone. Exactly. <laughs> so Becky, where can people find more of your work online? So on Twitter, I am at Bunny Dark. I've got two main podcasts. So uh, with my best friend, Jill Nolan, I present Don't Point That Horror At Me, which is a deep dive every month into a different point horror book. So more kind of 90s teen horror. Um, And we are at Point Horror Pod. Then also with Josh Tonks, I co-host a rewatch podcast about the 90s kids show Eerie Indiana. Um, and you can also find me guesting on various bits and bobs here and there. Amazing. Thank you again. And thank you to everyone who's been listening to the Witcher series. Now go watch some witch movies. Got um, I've got stuff on my watch list from it, including a couple from today. So I've got to go and get watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah get, get on that Soviet horror. It's a whole vibe. Yeah. <laughs>